Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is such a confronting text. Lord, I'm embarrassed at myself in the face of this text. Lord, how many times we've looked at the cross and celebrated what you've done for us in Christ on the cross, and and then we ignore so many times what it means, its implications. So again, we pray, Lord, as we come to your word, that you'd enable us to focus, that you would enable me to teach this faithfully and clearly. You'd open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to you, to what Jesus did on the cross, and that it would, would cut us to the heart. It would move us that as we see Jesus Christ in his cross, that it would, um, it would change us. Lord, for anyone here who doesn't know you, that you would save them today as they, as they hear of the cross. And for those who do know you, Lord, that we would uh, move closer towards you, what it means to hear you and follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure you have. I'm going to ask anyway. Have you ever noticed someone being completely clueless in a conversation? Right. I take the laughter as yes. One person says something, and it's like the other person just heard nothing at all of what the first person said, and the second person just shoots off where his own mind wants to take him. Or one person shares an honest difficulty, and the other person makes an awkward joke. Uh, one person is trying to sincerely express a thought. The other person keeps interrupting with ideas that aren't even necessarily related to what the first person is saying. You know, how often are we clueless towards other people? I'm sure we've all experienced interactions like these and honest confessions. Sometimes I have been the clueless one, so please forgive me. But it's hard. I mean, just to take a moment of self-reflection, it's hard, isn't it, to get out of the echo chamber of your own mind? Um, It is difficult to escape our own desires, our own assumptions, our own offenses, When we're relating with other people. At best, it's awkward when we're clueless with one another. At worst, it displays a lot of self-infatuation and pride. How many of you are tempted to be self-infatuated? I'm trying to get this on our idea, or or, sorry, I'm trying to get this idea on our minds because in this morning, uh, in our text this morning, Mark is showing us the hard news, are you ready, that Christians do this to Jesus all the time. Christians do this to Jesus all the time. He tells us about himself and what he came to do, and in our infatuation with ourselves, sometimes we act like we never heard a word he said. We're going through the Gospel of Mark, and we've seen over and over again how Mark is answering these three all-important questions. Number one, who is Jesus? Number two, what did he come to do? Number three, in light of those first two realities, how should we respond to them? Chapters one to eight, Mark displayed to us just overwhelming evidence for who Jesus is. Mark told us, and then he showed us. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's who he is. He's the eternal Son of God who's taken on real humanity. And in his coming, he is God's promised king who's going to save his people, defeat his enemies, renew the world. That's who Jesus is. Since chapter 8, Mark has shown us Jesus declaring again and again and again exactly what he came to do. Verses 32 to 34 of our passage this morning give the clearest picture yet of what Jesus came to do. And so Jesus is going to tell his disciples again. And then we're going to see his disciples are completely obtuse to what he said. It just won't go in. And yet even still, Jesus 
serves them. So, Lord willing, so we need to pray for it. This passage will expose us to ourselves. Are you open to that? This passage will expose us to ourselves. Hopefully next it will drive us again to Jesus, what he's done. And third, may it transform us just a little bit more to be like him. So I've got four points today. If you want to take notes or follow along. Number one, the mission. Number two, the miss. Number three, the mandate. And number four, the Messiah. The mission, the miss, the mandate, and the Messiah. And just as an aside, I got some preacher points, didn't I? I did all the points with the same letter. Thank you. Thank you. Most weeks I don't even try, but this week it just came right to me. But first of all, the mission. You see it in verses 32 to 34. They're on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus is walking ahead of them. They're, they're on a journey. They're going somewhere. They're going intentionally. Who's first? Who's leading? Jesus. And they're following him. It's a picture of discipleship, isn't it? He goes first. He always goes first. He never takes us anywhere. He hasn't gone before or won't go with us. He goes first. But we are to follow him there. We go where he goes. And the text says he's going up to Jerusalem. Has a couple meanings. One, just literally, um, to go to Jerusalem, you go up. It's on, it's on a hill. You got a couple thousand feet of altitude. You're, you're hiking up a mountain. He's going up to Jerusalem. But there's also probably a symbolic hint. You get the same idea in the Gospel of John. The Son of Man will be lifted up. He's talking about his cross. He's going to die lifted up to all see. And he then proceeds. Um, Mark shows us in the next verses, Jesus predicting the events of his death with just incredible detail. It's like three scenes to it Jesus mentions. Number one, he's going to be delivered over. He's going to be betrayed by a close friend. And he knows who's going to betray him. He's going to be delivered over. Number two, he knows he's going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders of Israel. They're going to unjustly condemn him to death. He knows that's coming. He'll be mocked, he'll be slandered. Number three, he knows that the religious leaders will deliver him over to the Roman state. That's why he mentions he will be flogged. Roman flogging is, is just a nightmare. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's where they have the straps of leather with rocks or glass on the end, and they just they rip your back off. And that's before crucifixion. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what's going to happen to him. He'll be flogged. He'll be killed. So, so I'm just wondering, which way would you head if you knew that in the city in front of you, there was betrayal by a close friend, slander, an unjust trial, and then flogging in a crucifixion. Which way are you headed? Stop the car, do a U-turn, go the other way as quickly as possible. And that's why verse 32 says, they were amazed and those who followed him were afraid. Jesus' disciples knew enough to know that Jesus had enemies who wanted to kill him. They hated him. It's, they knew enough to know it was possibly dangerous. You can see why they would be afraid a little bit to go with him. Jesus knows to the detail. And even though they're not really taking in the details and the meaning of what he says, they know enough to be amazed. Because aren't you kind of amazed? Shouldn't we be amazed? Jesus walked into Jerusalem, knowing betrayal, condemned, tortured, and murdered. He walked into it. As Luke said, he set his face towards Jerusalem. You want to imagine his face for a minute as this book changes its channel and heads towards Jerusalem? Can you imagine Jesus' face? Can you imagine the 
the dedication, the intention, the, the stubbornness, the power of his will to walk into what will be the cross. But I'm talking about his mission here. I hope, I hope it's clear to all of us. According to Jesus in these verses, what did he come to do? Why did he come? He came to die on a cross. That's why he came. And this sets Jesus apart, doesn't it? As we think about this idea, of course, there are many who have died for their beliefs or who have been willing to face death for what they believe. That's not strange in the world. But, but this is different because we're, as we're going to see in verse 45, Jesus talked about his death in substitutionary terms taking someone else's place. So for many, right, even a religious hero or a, a martyr, for many, their death is an unfortunate result of something else they were trying to do. You know, oh, he was trying to change things, and he got, it, he got him killed. But that is not what Jesus is talking about here. It's not as though he was trying to change things and it got him killed. No, his getting killed is how he changes things. His death is what he came to do. It is the mission. In his own words, Jesus came to die for his people, and his death is what sets them free. And in this way, and many other ways as well, but in this way, there is no one like him, is there? All the religious leaders, philosophers of the world, what do they do? They try to tell you of the way, and then maybe they're an example of how to walk the way. Though Jesus' example is pristine, and, does he does and though he does tell us of the way, he did not come fundamentally to be an example. Is, is Jesus' example alone going to save you? Doesn't it condemn you? He's not only the example. No, he came to die as a substitute. That's his mission. And he walked right into it. Amazing. Just be amazed at Jesus. The mission. Now the miss. And I'm thinking of somebody lobbing you a softball and you missed. <laughs> the miss. The more you think of how Jesus continually predicted his cross and set his face towards it, the more astounding the response of his disciples truly is. Look at verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. If you're a parent, you ever had your kid do that before? Hey, Dad, you do something for me? Yeah. What do you want me to say? Like, yes? I mean, what do you want me to do? That's kind of important before I answer. That's what the disciples are doing with Jesus. The old theologian John Stott said of this passage, given the context here, this might be the worst prayer any of God's people have ever prayed. <laughs> I'm going to die for you. We want you to do for us whatever we tell you. They ask for a blank check that places him under their control. It's as if he exists for their desires. And it's so great because it has a guise of religiosity. We believe you're the Messiah. We believe you hear prayer and answer. But in that guise of religiosity, it's pride. And isn't religiosity actually a really great place for pride to grow? Give us whatever we want. Even more surprisingly, I guess, than their request is that Jesus is kind and patient enough to actually listen to them. I am so not Jesus. That's not surprising any of you. But imagine, can you imagine just a little bit, I'm going to die for you. And someone else is like, we want you to give us whatever we want. How many of you are going to pop off a little bit right there? Are you? Jesus doesn't. He's so humble. He's so patient. What do you want me to do for you? 
Well, it's going to get worse. Look at verse 37. They said to him, grant us one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Grant us to sit in the places of power. That's what we want. They are asking for what imagines to be seats of privilege in his political cabinet, right? They, they're products of their culture. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. That's good and true. But they imagine the Messiah being a conquering political king. And so, hey, they're, they're maybe seeing what might be coming. He's going to Jerusalem. Maybe there's a coronation. He receives the kingdom. And fortune favors the bold, right? Little ambition. Jesus, we've been with you from the beginning. How about, how about me and my bro here sitting at your, the seats of power and influence? They are calling for seats of power like some kids demand the front seat on a trip, right? You ever seen that? I called it. But let's ponder what they're looking for. Because, you know, the... Theologian John Calvin said, this is a bright mirror of human vanity. This is a bright mirror of human vanity. What do you look at when you look in a mirror? What do you see when you look in a mirror? Yourself. That's what's so embarrassing about this passage. I think we see ourselves. Jesus just talked about the cross. They want power. They want to be recognized, to have clout, to be seen as successful and important. Anyone? They want security. Think about it. All their lives, they were just fishermen. Now they can be something. Security. They want comfort. It's not, it's not a seed of suffering one of control. They want to be served. That's how you know you made it, right? People serve you because you're someone, and they think they deserve it. Bottom line, they want Jesus' reign as king to function for their selfish benefit. They want a crown without a cross right after Jesus tells them about his cross. And here I'm guilty. Are you guilty? Talk about clueless. Talk about obtuse. Talk about missing it. Jesus says, I'm heading to flogging in a cross. As one friend of mine put it when we were looking at this passage, it's as if they say, oh, the cross, can I be in charge of your army? It's like they never heard a word he said. They, cer they certainly don't seem to be remembering what Jesus said in Mark 8, 34. And maybe we forgot as well. Mark 8, 34, look what it says. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him, what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the pattern of Christianity. It is the only pattern of Christianity. There is not a way to belong to Christ and follow him where you don't deny yourself and take up your cross. That's not real. It doesn't exist. If anyone would follow me, there's a death to pride that must occur. So that you can be devoted to Jesus at any cost. And his disciples just, they don't hear it. They don't want it. They don't get it. And we're exposed. Man, I'm so exposed. Think of our prayers, our goals, and our attitudes towards others. How many times are we self-serving? How many times do we want Jesus to build our kingdom? How many times do our goals mirror the disciples' power, security, comfort, recognition, being served, having it easy? How many times do we miss the message 
of the cross. And in our day, there are entire doctrines that actually take the cross and make it a vehicle towards our comfort and our ease and our power. It's not what Jesus is saying. What a miss. The mission, the miss, not a mandate. I think there's kind of two steps on the way to Jesus giving his mandate to his disciples. In the midst of their pride, I'm just so amazed by the humility of Jesus. Starts in verse 38, first step. Jesus responds to their request. Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Just, just think of the reality of our pride. The, the main problem with human pride is that it's a lie. Right? I'm great. Not really. Um, God is great, yes. The, the, the problem with human pride is a lie, but when, you're, when your whole life is framed by pride and your values and your assumptions and your goals are self-promotion and pride, you're just living in a false reality. So even for Jesus to say, you, you don't know what you're asking, you don't even, you don't get it. You're not tied to what's real. And then he asks this question, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So Jesus mentions the cup and the baptism. What do you think he's talking about? We'll start with the cup. Many times in the Old Testament, the cup you drink, I guess you can imagine it like a toast, um, it signifies your destiny, your future, what's coming, right? And so sometimes you lift up the cup of salvation, God's blessing to me, and it defines your life. That's, that's in there. But many times the cup signifies the wrath of God coming on human rebellion. I'll just give you two examples. Look at Psalm 75.8, in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. You see that symbolism, right? Here's my wrath, drink up. Here's another one, Isaiah 51.17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. So what's Jesus talking about? Why would he drink the cup of wrath? Look at how he prays in Mark 14. These are just holy words. Mark 14, it's the night he's betrayed and he goes to the garden Look who he takes with him. Same guys. He took with him Peter and James and John. And Jesus, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. This is Jesus, right, who is so composed in every moment so far. All the, all the crowds He's composed, enemies composed, teaching in the temple composed, even, even as the soldiers come in a moment, composed. He is in control, but here he is expressing sorrow even to death. It's overwhelming to him. Verse 35, and going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this, what, cup from me. I don't want to drink it. Yet not what I will, but what you will. What's the cup he's going to drink? It's the same thing as the cross. On the cross, he is going to drink the cup of the wrath of God that all of his people deserve for their pride and their sin. And it would melt you down just to think of Jesus on the cross for you. I mean, Jesus on the cross for me. 
But then just think of Jesus on the cross for us. All of us. All of his people. All their sin. And friends, Jesus' distress is not ultimately about the physical suffering. Many have walked into physical suffering with joy, courage, confidence. That is not what is having Jesus feeling like he's coming undone. The distress comes from the wrath of his father that he will take on the cross. And that is the baptism as well. The tidal wave of the just wrath of God against sin. A million hells. Luke 12, 50, Jesus would talk like this. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. It's amazing even just to consider Jesus' experience in this life. No wonder he was a man of sorrows. I mean, just imagining this a little bit, I don't really want to know when or how I'm going to die, do you? What if you did? I mean, what if it was terrible? Wouldn't it just, ugh, it would be constant stress, constant angst, would always weigh on you. Thank God we don't know. Jesus knew. It was his mission. And not only that, it's not just my death or your death or any other normal death, as, as terrible as those can be. It's the wrath of God on a Roman cross. And he wore that every day. And you just feel this question now. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And we all should sit here and go, no. And look what the disciples say in verse 39. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. We're able. No problem. That's pride right there. You think you're worthy of way more than you're actually worthy of. You think you can handle far more than you can actually handle. You remember Peter? Jesus telling Peter, hey, um, you're going to betray me. Peter's like, no, I will not. I will die with you. Huh? We'll see. All these guys, yeah, we can drink the cup. The soldiers come to that garden. Where do they go? Run for the hills. Because Jesus loves us, he lets our pride be exposed. First step towards his mandate, Jesus calls him to think about what he's doing. Second step towards his mandate, he still exemplifies his own humility towards them. Again, what would you be tempted to do with these guys if you were in Jesus' shoes? Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Yeah. That's why he's Jesus and not us, right? He's so humble towards them. Verse 39, Jesus says to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Friends, I think this is a promise as much as a prediction. Again, cup and baptism can, for Jesus, we know what that means, it's cross. For his people, it means taking up your cross and suffering for Jesus' sake. And look what he's saying to them. I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to keep you. These prideful people. In fact, these prideful, selfish men will be so transformed by Jesus' cross and resurrection that their entire outlook on life will change. They give themselves up for the glory of Jesus and his church to the point of death. I think it's right to say this is the first apostolic martyr for Jesus and the last. James will be executed for the sake of the gospel. John will die exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Look what he will later write, 1 John 3, 16. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, 
that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's the same guy who said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's the same guy who said, oh, we, we can do it. Look how he's changed. And you see Jesus' humility and patience with him. I guess that means there's hope for me. There's hope for you. Jesus' kindness is humility. I love this quote by commentator James Edwards. I mean, they're, they're following Jesus. They're clueless, but they're following Jesus. James Edwards, our discipleship is never as noble as we imagine it. And all God's people said, amen. Our discipleship is never as noble as we imagine it, but Jesus accepts it nevertheless. In that too, the humility of Jesus is evident. Wow. So Jesus calls them here as, as he's getting to his mandate to think about what he's doing. He it displays humility towards them. He also displays humility towards the Father in heaven. They ask for these seats. Verse 40, Jesus says, to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. It is for those, it is for, those for whom it has been prepared. There's a great mystery, right? Who's going to sit at Jesus' right and his left? Well, all I know is it won't be me. But I don't think any of us know. You remember last week we saw that line, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. God knows. He has a seat for them. But even here, Jesus shows humility. That's, that's what my father is going to decide. I'm submitted to him. I do as he says. The reason I go to the cross is my father has sent me to go to the cross to save the people. And in that attitude, oh, shouldn't we be like Jesus? Not Jesus, we want you to do whatever you ask for us, but Jesus, I will do whatever you ask of me. That takes us to Jesus' mandate. Jesus insists something about his kingdom. You, you see it start in, the moment begins in verse 41. When the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at, at James and John. So, so here Peter is telling Mark, well, it wasn't just James and John that were like this, unfortunately. They hear James and John asking for the seats of power, and how do they all feel? You know, are they coming in and saying, you know, Jesus, I would love to give my seat away. Give it to someone else. No. I mean, think of it. They imagine an imaginary pie. And there's so many, so there's only so many pieces to the imaginary pie. And they already got two of the pieces, two of the big pieces. So what do you got to do now? You got to go fight for your peace. Nobody else is going to fight for you. Fight for your rights. Stand up for yourself. Can you hear our culture? You deserve it. You got to go get what you want at any cost. And look, here on the way to the cross, there's almost complete division among God's people because of their pride. We watch churches and families and everything else fracture over pride. They're indignant. They're like people running each all over each other on Black Friday. In Jesus' name. So Jesus intervenes to make something real clear. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. Look at verse 43. It shall not be so among you. I think we just need to say that again. It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever must, would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus makes a decisive contrast between how power works in this rebellious world and in his kingdom. 
decisive contrast. And he says there has to be a break. The broken world does power this way. It works in this world. It does not work in the kingdom. The kingdom does power this way. Many times it will look like it does not work in this world. The question is, where's your allegiance? Which kingdom are you in as shown by your pride and how you exercise the idea of power, of influence, of ambition? Because you can claim Jesus and do this the way of the world. Not so among you, right? How does the world do it? This idea of lording over. It's about selfish ambition. It's about valuing yourself over other people. It's about domination, manipulation. It's the power of pride. And I don't know if you've noticed, but our cultural moment makes this a virtue. You're told this is the right way. You're told to follow your inclination, to love yourself first. When we believe that, we are ignoring the cross, ignoring it. Jesus is saying, don't even bring that in here. And let's make it even worse, right? Some of us are really good at serving. Isn't it possible to even serve with a worldly attitude? What's your goal when you serve? I only speak here as a criminal who understands, okay? Isn't it nice to feel a little self-pity when you do a lot of service? Don't you have a little bit of the sacrificial lamb syndrome? paid a heavier debt than others did. I guess I'm worthy of some recognition and praise now. That's the world. It ignores the cross. I serve those people. They didn't say anything. They didn't write, they didn't write me. They didn't. It ignores the cross. So church, we cannot share in the motives and methods and power of the world. Our mandate is not to set up our seats for societal power, recognition, respect, and comfort. Not so among you. Look at verse 43. This is what Jesus' kingdom looks like. And by the way, this is the only kingdom that truly matters. It's the only kingdom that will never end. It's the only kingdom that lasts forever. It's the only kingdom full of joy and full of freedom and full of peace and lavish abundance and goodness. This is living right here. This is the good life this is the good life. Don't believe what they tell you. This is the good life. Verse 43, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. See, he doesn't tell you not to try to have a meaningful life. He doesn't tell you not to want to do something incredible. That's a, that's a good thing. That's a human thing, to live for a mission, to work for a kingdom, to accomplish something great is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. Our world twists it. And we are tempted to believe it. Here's how you do legit greatness. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. This is, the, this is, this is key to following Jesus and what it means to take up our cross. We value humble service. Giving of self for the benefit of others and the glory of Jesus giving of self for the benefit of others and the glory of Jesus. And really, this is a picture of love, isn't it? Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Jesus gives freedom. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The flesh is almost always this idea of self-orientation. Through love, serve one another. That's what you're free to do now. You've been set free. 
to love and serve one another. Well, I don't know how you're feeling. I, I felt embarrassed um, planning the sermon because I'm just like, I'm like the disciples. It's embarrassing. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. It's just be honest. Humble service does not come naturally to me. It feels like, what does it feel like? It can feel like losing. It can feel like missing out. It can feel like there's something around the corner and I'm just about to let this go. I feel like I'm going to die instead of live. I feel like I'm going to lose instead of win. That's exactly how the cross looks sometimes. I want to read you this quote from John Stott. It's a little long. I think it's powerful. Stott said this, any contemporary observer who saw Christ die would have listened with astonished incredulity to the claim that the crucified was a conqueror. Had he not been rejected by his own nation, betrayed, denied, deserted by his own disciples, and executed by authority from the Roman procurator? Look at him there, spread eagled, skewered on his cross, robbed of all freedom of movement, hung up with nails, pinned there, and powerless. It appears to be total defeat. If there is victory, it is the victory of pride, prejudice, jealousy, hatred, cowardice, and brutality. Yet, the Christian claim is that the reality is opposite of the appearance. What looks like the defeat of goodness by evil is also, and more certainly, the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there, he was himself overcoming, crushed by the ruthless power of Rome. He was himself crushing the serpent's head, the victim was the victor because he's going to rise from the dead. When your heart says, it feels like dying, remember, take up your cross. In dying, you will truly live. You will live. Others will live. The kingdom will live. So we've seen the Mission, the miss, the mandate. Now we need to see the Messiah. Yeah, we could ask, how on earth could I be transformed to be more like this? I, mean, I don't know if you know, but pride seems like the last thing to die, doesn't it? Pride is at the core of every sin. It's at the core of our fall into sin. And pride, it's like some slimy sponge, like bacteria grows well there. Pride goes well in religion. And service. I can be prideful about being more humble than you. How does it, how can it actually die? How can I actually be changed? You've got to see again the Messiah. See the Messiah. And this is the heart of the gospel of Mark. It's the heart of the gospel. Verse 45. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many so first, you're supposed to see the greatest one ever. Jesus doesn't often call himself the Christ in the Gospels because his cultural moment so misunderstood what it meant to be the Christ. That's not me, he would be saying. So he chooses many times this idea of the Son of Man, which is also a rich title in the Old Testament. And it, it better grabbed the majesty of who he is. Here's one picture of the Son of Man from Daniel 7. Think about how great this person is. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
what you're supposed to see here is behold the greatest, the great one. That's him. Look, the Son of Man came not to be served. He deserves it, but he came not to be served. He came to serve. And how did he serve you? He gave his life as a ransom for you. Oh, what unparalleled service. What unparalleled love. It's a ransom. It's the idea of his death purchasing you. I want this person to know me and to belong to me, to be mine, to see my face. I love this person. Jesus, what price would you pay to have this person? Would you go to a cross in their place? Jesus says, yes, I will serve them that way. He bought you at the price of his life. He paid the debt you owe. And that, the the heart of the gospel, I think that's the only thing in the world that legitimately can break the power of pride. See, we're we're self-inclined, right? On one hand, that's either insecure, oh, look at me, I'm, I'm not good enough. Or the other hand, we're boasting, oh, look at me, I'm wonderful. In both cases, what are we looking at? Me, the cross just yanks my face up away from me, and it tells me the truth. How awful, how guilty, how unworthy am I? I'm actually worse than I thought. That's what I deserve. That's what it takes to save me. It humbles me, but it doesn't leave me in a place of self-hatred. Or of insecurity, because not only does it show me what I deserve, it shows me how loved I am. It shows me how cared for, cared for I am. And that lifts me up out of despair into a joy that Jesus would love me like this. The unworthy, the undeserving. And doesn't now where are our eyes, our eyes are on him. Our eyes are on him. I don't have to be a slave to insecurity anymore. I don't have to be a slave to my self-praise anymore. I want to think about him. I want to be like him and serve. So let's listen to the cross. Just a couple implications. Number one, if you're not a Christian today, I hope... You're listening to the cross because, I mean, we're all exposed as not being good or righteous on our own, and we need someone to save us. And here you have Jesus telling you, I paid the price on the cross. Repent of your pride, your self-ownership, and trust yourself to me. I will forgive you. I will bring you near my life for yours. You belong to me. Listen to the cross. Trust yourself to Jesus today. If you want to know more about that, I would love to talk to you about it. Second, just as a church, let's lean into what's truly great. Isn't, isn't it easy to kind of lean into a life of like self-protection, especially as you feel maybe more marginalized by society? Let's just pull the wagons close. Think, think, think more about risky sacrifice for the kingdom of God. Living a little more edgy than you think you might. Giving a little more than you thought you could. Throwing yourself out there a little further because you're thinking of both your security in Christ and what he's done for you and also this call to pour yourself out for the kingdom. To give ourselves to be truly great. You know, I just, I, I couldn't help but mention this. Matthew 20 tells us more details about this moment when the disciples came to be like, hey, Jesus, give us whatever we want. You know who it was that led them there? It was their mommy. 
they were they were relatives of Jesus, and they used the, I think it's the aunt clout. Hey, we're related to you. So their mommy came up, and we're like, give my boys these nice seats. And we're all a little embarrassed because we're like, mom, you know. But it raises the question, how do we raise our kids and with what, what value set? What do you want for their careers? Is it just make a lot of money and have a nice house and be, be a nice person? Or is there something in there a little bit that would says, you know what, if you, if you went to the most dangerous place in the world as a missionary, I would be so proud of you and your biggest supporter. If, if you didn't live as lucrative of a life, but you were giving yourself to service to the world for the glory of God, I would be so proud of you. Do we think that way, just about life in general? To give ourselves up to serve. And the last thing I want to say here is I just want to thank God for his grace in his church. So many of you are examples to me in how you selflessly serve. Hours and hours and hours and hours, not thanked nearly enough, and I know that you do it for Jesus Christ. So number one, don't get cocky, okay? But thank God, because you know what? It's, it's not shiny to the world. It's not on a, a newspaper article. It looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus, and it's truly great. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we are all... Uh, we're all run over by the truth and example of Jesus Christ. So I just pray, Lord, thank you for your gentleness to us. Thank you that you receive us as flawed as we are. You accept our discipleship with all its inconsistencies. But I pray, Lord, I pray for anybody who doesn't know you that you would just grab them today, help them anchor themselves in the cross of Jesus Christ. Trust him. And I pray for each one of us who do know you that you would move us move us forward in one way where we can embrace what you've said and serve and be great and even take what looks like a loss knowing that because of the the reality of the cross it's a win. This is your kingdom. We pray these things for your glory in Jesus name. Amen.